Hello, everyone. This is Saqib and Matt. Uh, we thought it's it's pretty wise to do a podcast given uh, the landscape of boat tours, and we had an eventful weekend of tennis. We are a little late, but it's I guess it's never too late when the topics are as good as you know Djokovic, Federer, Chilich, Kvitova, and even the return of Andy Murray. So, welcome, Matt. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be aboard. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, what unfolded yesterday. Uh, I mean, with Federer, I know you wrote a very uh, insightful piece, but that's, uh, you know, it's always dialogue-provoking because how the match was won or how the match was lost. I think, in my opinion, Chorich, you know, uh, played a very uh, compact and solid game, and he had a plan which just kept going to Federer's back end, and he himself was pretty comfortable at net besides that uh, the, the cute little volley that he dumped in the net. But overall, I think he had a plan, and I think it's, tennis is always about matchups. Uh, Roger did look better than the rest of the week. Uh, otherwise, he had no business being here the way he was playing in Benoit Pair. But, you know, uh, that's, I think those those things even out in a career when, you know, you get out of those matches and then win tournaments. And I think every top player has had the day, has that kind of a day. Uh, I know you wrote a good piece, but uh, so you think the Chorich won this match or Federer had his opportunities to wrap or both can coexist, both statements can? Uh, I think it's much more that Chorich won. Uh, I, you know, when when considering the fact that Federer had two set points in the first set, you know, people will easily say, well, the, the set was on Federer's racket. He should have closed it down. But w- one thing to really absorb about grass court tennis is that one or two points often tell the tale, much more than in clay or, or, or hard court tennis. The points go so quickly, you know, you get a bad bounce on the grass, the serve goes through the court more quickly on grass, the surface rewards a big serve and a big turn uh, return more than the other surfaces do. So very brief lapses or very brief displays of excellence quickly shift grass sets. And so, you know, because of the surface, you will even the elite players will find themselves in tiebreakers a lot. It was true of Pete Sampras, true of uh, Goran Ivanisevic, true of you know the other formidable grass court players we've seen over many decades. You just have to be able to win tiebreakers on grass, and we don't really think of clay or hard courts as surfaces where you have to win tiebreakers. This comes up more on grass. You know, last year at Wimbledon. Federer, you know, he didn't crush the field. He 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 won every set, but he went five and zero in tiebreakers. Uh, he you know, he answered the bell in those critical moments. But we have to remind ourselves that tiebreakers are crapshoots. You know, they are very fragile organisms. It's going to come down to just a few points. And so, as we go back to that Halle final on Sunday at six four, sure, we would expect Federer to to win that tiebreaker. You know, 95 times out of 100, this was one of those few times in which he didn't do it. And, you know, he missed a first serve at 6-4. Torch pounded a return winner for a, on one point. You know, that doesn't mean Federer choked. Not, not making a first serve does not represent a choke. You know, we have, we have to remind ourselves of that. And then at 6-5, you know, could Federer have hit that overhead at net a little bit more authoritatively? Possibly, but that that lob really was at the top of his racket. I think if we're being fair, 
we can make a slight allowance for Federer not hitting it as cleanly as he needed to, but also that he had to fully extend. And here's where the, the minute differences of matches and tournaments comes into play. If Federer had lost his first match in Stuttgart the way he did to Tommy Haas last year, does he get to that lob more authoritatively? Does he hit the ball harder against Chorich on Sunday? I kind of think so. But that was not the circumstance under which the match was played. So on balance, Chorich, with his return at 6-4 and then staying in a point on a bad bounce there at 6-5, you know, Chorich earned that comeback at the very end of the first set. He earned the, th- the good things that came his way. So while it, it serves clickbait and it serves page views and it serves publicity to say, oh, what a horrible first set tiebreaker loss for Federer, that got away from him. It, while it's easy to say that, I think the fair analytical point of view is to say that Chorich battled and competed really well and he earned what he got in that match yesterday. And yeah, I couldn't agree more uh, because my question was based on because a lot of time the narrative shifts around the top player. And uh, I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, Chorich Karma was rewarded because we all know Spedder really had, you know, uh, no business winning that match in Indian Wells and Chorich stuck to the game plan. And I think Federer was playing really good, solid tennis considering, you know, he's played what, nine matches in 12 days. The first two sets he gave it his all and then if the wheels did come off, I think that's credit to Chorich in the end. So let me ask you this. Uh, what does this loss mean for Roger? I think uh, you, a lot of people are talking about fatigue. Well, it could be, but you think the week off offsets that and he's still the man to beat? Uh, of course, a lot will depend where the draw, how the draw puts some of those big names in what quarters and, you know, where Kyrgios lands, where Djokovic lands. But overall, when, you know, all things are not set in stone yet, he's, is he still the man to beat for you? Well, I think, you know, this is going to be a very draw-dependent tournament in my mind. But with that having been, been said, just looking at Federer in general, one thing to keep in mind about his Wimbledon schedule, as defending champion, we know he's going to play Monday, Wednesday, Friday of the first week. And that, of course, means that Nadal's going to play Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday of the first week. So when you play Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the first week at Wimbledon, that means you get two whole days off before Manic Monday and the round of 16. So as long as Federer gets through that first week without too much strain, you know, as long as he doesn't play a long five-setter, maybe against Andy Murray in the second round. We'll have more to say on Murray later. Uh, as long as Federer gets through that first week without too much stress, you know, maybe he loses a tie break. Uh, at some point, he has to play a four-setter, but it's, you know, still like a, just a two-and-a-half-hour match. As long as he gets through that first week, he will be fresh for the second week because of those two days off uh, on the weekend. Uh, so there, there should be no concerns uh, about his fitness. Uh, you know, after you are off from the tour for two whole months, an explosion of nine matches in 12 days represents just a huge surge in activity, so even though he played only four matches in Stuttgart, and even though he had days off within both Stuttgart and Halle, you know, he had a day between his round of 16 in Stuttgart and his quarterfinal, he had a day off between his R32 uh, in Halle and his R16, uh, even with those built-in days off, he had a very compressed schedule 
in the in the uh, quarters and semis. Uh, actually, the the R16 quarters and semis of Holly. He played his R16 at four o'clock. He played his quarterfinal at two o'clock, and he played his semifinal at 11:45 in the morning because the German television station. This is per Rene Denfeld. The German television station wanted to have the Federer semifinal on first so as to not conflict with Germany's Saturday World Cup match against Sweden. So Federer played a very time-compressed schedule in Halle, uh, and the, the Chorich, by winning that first set tiebreaker, enabled him to drag Federer into a third set when, as you said, the wheels came off a little bit at the end. Uh, but there's not going to be that kind of compressed uh, attritional schedule at Wimbledon, so Federer really should be fine on that point. And even in a twenty in a career that's spanning twenty years, I think this is the maximum grass court matches Federer has played uh, leading up to Wimbledon. So because there was always this one tune-up he would play, and now the second year he's playing the second tune-up leading up to the big show. And uh, last year he lost to Haas, and this year he has nine matches. Uh, I think uh, Fed Nation, especially most fans, are you know they have every right to overreact because you know everybody was expecting number ten yesterday. But he, I think he have a, he has a solid uh, leader beating the likes of Kyrgios and Raonic, who I think if healthy are easily top five, top six in grass. You can throw their rankings out; they are like that good. Uh, let's switch and talk about Vana Chorich. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter putting him in his top five favorite. Uh, not too prep for the podcast, but I think the guy is legit. But I wouldn't quite put him there because a lot of other players who I would still put uh, ahead of him on, on, on a best-of-five major when he has never advanced past any major, I think, the round of 32. Yeah, that la- I was just about to mention that last point. When you've never made the fourth round at any major, uh, you know, and, and you are going to have to need to play very likely some four- and five-set matches, that, that puts the challenge in a completely different light. Chorich said he had served better than he ever had before in his life uh, after beating Federer, uh, but when you have to serve at your highest level over four or five sets as opposed to two or three, you know, we've seen this even with great servers such as John Isner. It becomes a very different deal when you have to, when you have to fire that fastball uh, for two more hours compared to a, a quick best-of-three match. Uh, so absolutely, he, he he can't be in the top five, but his career is certainly going in the right direction. He's certainly making the appropriate adjustments. He's certainly adding layers to his game. Uh, he, he, you know, this this has been a welcome sight for him uh, in 2018. Uh, absolutely, let's switch uh, to the other final that was played in London. And uh, I don't know if you want to disagree with me. Leading up to the final and even the first set, I think. Uh, uh, if you look at both fields, and I, I did get up and get to watch a lot of matches uh, on on tape as well. Uh, I think Novak Djokovic is fair to say, till Chilic beat him, uh, he looked like the best player across both tournaments to me. He was really finding his range, and he he had some tricky opponents in Shardy and uh, Dimitrov. Of course, Dimitrov did not uh, live up to his name, but Djokovic was pretty clinical, and uh, this was a very welcome uh, sight to see uh, after his departure in Roland Garros. He got a lot of matches there. Uh, didn't go his way against uh, Chekinato, but you could see him as uh, quite focused. The game cleaned up a lot. And uh, same thing I'm going to ask you, part B of the question. Uh, did did Chilich win this or Novak lost this, like the first final? Chilich absolutely won it. This was a match that Chilich took away from Djokovic at the death. Uh, when you know Chilich faced a championship point against him, 
late in the second set. He overcame that. He was down 4-1 in the tiebreaker in the second set. You know, I certainly thought he was done. Most rational people thought he was done. One thing, one has to keep in mind that Djokovic entered this match with a 14-1 head-to-head. Uh, you know, when, when one player has such a commanding upper hand and has such positive muscle memory and the other player has so many negative remembrances of a specific matchup, you know, that has to be valued and that a lot of weight has to be placed on something that decisive. Showich looked down the gun barrel of his history against Djokovic and he looked down the gun barrel of a very negative scoreboard situation and he responded with great tennis. Now, some people will say, and, and this should be noted, that at 4-3, serving at 4-3, still with a mini break, in that tie break, Djokovic double faulted, and that really was a key hinge point. But nevertheless, Chilich then played three very impressive points after that to consolidate his momentum, to consolidate his surge. And then as soon as he won that second set, we saw Chilich hit very freely and confidently at the start of set three. He pushed Djokovic back. And it was just the kind of mighty display of mental fortitude that we don't typically see from Chilich against a big three opponent. Against against other players uh, at major tournaments, you know, he has become a lot better over the past three years. Uh, but against big three guys, he has still fairly regularly faltered uh, to one degree or another. So that really is the most encouraging aspect of his performance. If he can handle tight situations like that at Wimbledon, he's going to go far. I would even like to add this because I think uh, most of us have followed this guy, you know, for quite a while. And he's a major champion. He's won uh, a Masters 1000 and he's made two other major finals. And uh, in, especially in the final against uh, Nishikori in New York when he when he made his, made his breakthrough, he was like serving lights out in the same way he did that against Federer and Burdick the two rounds before. So not saying those are not his best performances, but when met with a challenge, sometimes the knock has been, uh, he, you know, he shies away. And uh, this year he did rise to the challenge against Nadal, and Nadal got injured in Australia. But uh, this was pretty clutch. I think it was the most clutch I've seen Chilich going back to a semi quarterfinal in Australian Open against Roddick in 2010, I believe. He he made the semi, so I think this is, this is one of his most important wins. That's what I'm trying to say. Even though he's won a major and this was just a 500 final, but like you said, the context, he was against his nemesis. I think Novak has had his measure for the most part very convincingly. And when you go up against someone who's pretty much owned you uh, mentally and even in the game department, and this was a match that had a lot of world-class rallies, sideways movement, and Chilich held more than his own. Granted, Djokovic is still making, you know, his uh, his comeback to his you know elite levels, but this Djokovic was very focused. So I think this, uh, in my opinion, this is probably one of the best matches of Chilich's career, and and now an extension for you. Uh, does he come as the second favorite for you? Uh, of course, draw is not known yet. Like the same question I asked about Federer, yeah. uh, is he the second favorite for you? Yeah, we we this is something where we have to wait for the draw because Djokovic and Federer could play in the quarterfinals. That would obviously influence. Uh, you know, how, how we evaluate these things. You know, let's, let's consider this. Chilich could be the outright favorite for Wimbledon. And before the Federer fans get upset, I'm just trying to emphasize the point about the draw. Let's say that Djokovic, uh, gets, uh, and Federer play in the quarterfinals. Let's say Rafa gets Kevin Anderson and Nick Kyrgios in the, uh, he gets Kyrgios in the fourth round 
and then Anderson in the quarterfinals, the huge servers that usually give Rafa trouble on grass. And then let's say that Chilich gets a path with uh, Bautista Gut in the fourth round, you know, whom he destroyed uh, in the fourth round of Wimbledon last year, if I remember correctly. And then uh, and then he gets Team or Dimitrov in the quarterfinals. If you were to lay out those draw scenarios, uh, you could make a very, very strong and reasonable case that Chilich should be considered the first favorite, not even the second one. But that is just meant not to undercut or diminish Federer in any way. It's just to say that the draw is going to has offers many, many possibilities. And the way in which those draw avenues through the bracket, especially in the second week, how those avenues run, that's going to have a lot to say about who's first favorite, who's second favorite, who's third. And, like, I think I I definitely don't agree. And then tennis... I don't want to be like a broken record. It's all about matchups because it's such an individual sport and you have to offset each other's strengths and, you know, it's like a mind game out there plus, uh, you know, a battle of skills. And uh, the names you took for the quarterfinal, and then there are also names like Raonic and Kyrgios, if healthy, where do they land up? And uh, so, it, again, draw is going to be very intriguing. Um, the Chilich and Kyrgios in uh, the semifinal they had in London, uh, that was a very close match, but uh, Chilich never seemed out of source in that match, which brings us to Nick Kyrgios. Uh, he's a guy who's been nursing elbow and shoulder pain throughout, and he wisely took some time off uh, during the clay season and uh, looks like he's fully healed. Uh, and uh, how is he looking for you uh, going into the big show? He's uh, dropped in two semifinal decisions to Federer and Chilich in back-to-back weeks. Those are not bad losses by any account. Uh, is he focused? Is he good enough to last uh, longer in a fortnight, like uh, in a best of five format, you think he's just, he's he's past the distractions, and we'll get back to get to his fine, you know, the other episode later on. But let's talk about his tennis first. Yeah, well, Kyrgios is in a situation where, uh, much like Alexander Zverev, you know, he has to prove his stamina uh, in, in best of five matches, and Zverev began to show that at the French Open. Kyrgios has not been able to do that yet. Uh, you know, the, the, the game is there. I think we can all see that the, the level of tennis exists for him to be a huge problem and a massive threat at Wimbledon. But part of what I said earlier about, like, even John Isner, uh, having to, to throw that fastball, hit that huge serve, uh, over four or five sets compared to two or three is such a different reality in terms of the, in terms of the battle and the amount of quality that's required over an extended period of time. So, you know, if Kyrgios faces a tough player in the round of 32, round of 16, you know, he might have more in the tank, but the ability to win five matches, six matches, seven matches uh, in a best-of-five format, it's very hard to take Kyrgios seriously at this point. It's, it's He has to be able to show enough stamina more than anything else. The racket skills are there. The serve is there. The instincts and feel for the game are there. Stamina, stamina, stamina. That's really the big question with him. And also mental stamina, right? Because uh, he seems someone who can compartmentalize all the distraction and all the other manners, but once he's playing a big name, he's very dialed in. How much of a mental stamina do you think is going to haunt Kyrgios in a fortnight if he does go along? Because he's going to definitely be asked questions about the latest fine, and let's get to that. Do you think those are things someone like him can easily block out? Uh, again, and what do you think of that fine? You think that's a heavy fine because there's already 
some floating images of Pablo Cuevas and uh, some NFL player. So that's something, you know, we are not trying to endorse what he did is right, but you think uh, who did it in this case uh, had a direct correlation to the heavy fine that was imposed. Well, I think this is a case of reputation uh, creating a larger fine. Uh, you know, I want to make this clear. Saying that Kyrgios should have been fined less, and, and I, you know, I think he should have been fined, but it should it should not have been this uh, extensive. Uh, saying that Kyrgios should have had a lesser fine is not a defense of Kyrgios because the the conduct was unprofessional, it was unacceptable, and there should be a very tangible message and penalty for that kind of action. So that's not a defense of him. However, to say that this fine, you know, uh, or this action rather, merited this level of fine, if, if Kyrgios's action merited that level of fine, then we are creating a situation in which any action more severe than Kyrgios's action uh, should merit an even bigger fine. And the point was made by a number of people on Sunday that Jack Sock's verbal abuse of female umpires, that should be a much bigger deal uh, than what Kyrgios did. That's not a defense of Kyrgios. Again, Kyrgios should have been punished in a tangible way, but if we are grading or assessing the severity of actions, Sock's actions are far more severe and disturbing and, moreover, personal, you know, directed toward a specific individual than what Kyrgios did. So if we're going to set the standard that Kyrgios merit a certain uh, fine, we are we are then saying that other players' worse actions should merit even larger fines. Uh, that this is precisely the kind of thing for which a tennis players union exists, and and I wonder how Novak Djokovic and other players interested interested in sharpening up the tennis players union, leading that kind of effort, felt about that fine levied against Kyrgios. Hmm. Well, thanks for bringing Djokovic back. I was finding a way to revisit his piece in this podcast. So do you agree with me that he did look the best there across both fields till he lost that uh, deciding set? Absolutely. You know, th- I think that the biggest source of encouragement for Djokovic fans should be the serve. That was a very effective, fluid, consistent serve, which earned him a lot of cheap points. Uh, the serve was hitting the corners of the box. Uh, it's the best that he's – how he served at this tournament and for most of the first uh, two sets against Chilich, man, that, that serve is something that Djokovic fans had been waiting to come back uh, for quite some time. So if he serves like that at Wimbledon, he is going to be a heavy load for anyone he faces. Uh, I think the only thing to me uh, that that is still not fully there with Djokovic uh, is – the return. Uh, and if, if you remember in, when Federer beat Djokovic in the 2012 Wimbledon semifinals, four all, 30-40 for Federer on, on, you know, facing break point on his serve, late in set three, uh, he, he went with a serve down the tee from Ad, uh, a second serve, and Djokovic sent it long. And after that one mediocre Djokovic return, Federer was able to hold for 5-4, uh, I believe he then broke Djokovic to, to, to close out the third set, and then he rolled in the fourth set. You know, when Djokovic donates points on return, especially with the second ball, and that did happen in key moments against Cilic, uh on Sunday, you know, that that's when the, the matches Djokovic would normally lock down 
slipped through his fingers. So he needs to tighten up his return of serve, especially on second balls. If he can make that one extra advancement, uh, he will have as good a chance as anybody, uh, provided that he gets a decent enough draw. No, I agree with you. I think most fans, uh, objectively watching Djokovic could, could definitely make the case that he's, uh, he's hitting a much cleaner ball. There is more belief and he's found his rhythm and he was, you know, uh, yeah, he, he, he looked quite the player, uh, that, that was winning major. So he's not that far from, uh, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, he's not that, uh, far away from that level. But again, you know, best of five is a different animal and I'm sure Novak is hungry. So it's another intriguing addition to the fortnight that his form is somewhat, you know, back to those old levels. Uh, another member of the Big Four, Andy Murray, is playing uh, Stan Wawrinka right now. I haven't checked the score. Is that match over yet? And uh, what, what have you been hearing about Murray in his second match back? Uh, looks like he, he he was leading last time I checked against uh, uh, yeah, Stan Wawrinka. He, yeah, he closed down that match, 6-1, 6-3. The second set was, was not, you know, an, an, a routine 6-3 set. Uh, Murray serving at 4-3 in the second faced multiple break points in a prolonged multi-deuce game. He got out of that, and then he broke Vavrinka uh, to close out the match. So the second set was not a walk in the park. But nevertheless, one and three, that's a tw- 12 games to four. Even if we're talking about a rusty Vavrinka on grass, stands worse surface, still being able to come out and win a match 12 games to four, that's pretty impressive. Uh, our friend Tumani Cario noted that Murray's instincts and reflexes on his return of serve, are are coming back relatively quickly given the lack of match play that, that Murray has uh, under his belt. So that's an extremely encouraging sign uh, heading into Wimbledon, which, which you know, it, you know, it's assuming that Murray doesn't injure himself in his round of 16 uh, Eastbourne match coming up later this week, you know, he should be good to go in terms of playing Wimbledon, which is something that, a lot of us didn't think he'd be physically ready to do. So he, it seems as though Murray's going to be able to play Wimbledon. And I want to point out to listeners, this is the range of 17 through 32 seeds. I'm not going to talk about the top seeds because those guys are going to be too good for Murray, you know, if, if Murray plays them. But look at the 17 through 32 seeds. Just going to rattle them off. Chorich. Okay. Chorich might be able to beat Murray, but Pui, Sock, Fanini, Carreño Busta is the 21 seed. Carreño Busta has never won a Wimbledon main draw match. Edmund, okay, Edmund probably would beat Murray uh, today. Manorino, Gasquet, Nishikori, Chung, Cole Schreiber, Shapovalov, Zumer, Krajinovic, Chekinato, Verdasco. Most of those players, I think Andy Murray is ready to beat uh, if he would if he meets them in round one. Uh, so. While I don't think we should project Murray to get into the second week, you know, the chances of being able to play three cupcakes are pretty low. Uh, chances are he's going to have to beat somebody really good in that first week. Uh, I do think that, you know, his, the, the ability to win one or two matches at Wimbledon is going to be very good. I mean, assuming that the draw doesn't throw him a nasty curveball, maybe like Feliciano Lopez or somebody in the first round, as long as he avoids you know, a particularly skilled grass court player. I think Murray has a good shot to win a match at Wimbledon, which is something that a lot of us didn't think, you know, a few weeks ago uh, he'd have a reasonable chance to do. So this is this is considerable progress for Murray. Doesn't mean he's about to be a contender, no, 
but it definitely means that that this this comeback so far uh, has definitely exceeded expectations. No, I agree with you, but uh, just uh, on the names you took, I would say Rashad Gasquet is one player who's given Murray a lot of tough matches in the past when Murray was healthy and playing with confidence. So that could be a tricky match. But yeah, other names you took, I'm kind of on board that if Murray is not feeling any pain or ache, uh, he, he's probably a better grassroots player to handle a lot of those names if he does get that far. So let's wrap this up by talking about uh, Petra Kvitova, who was a winner in Birmingham. She defended her title, won her fourth grass title, and now she's playing Eastbourne the week before the major, which is uh, something I know uh, I, I've communicated with you enough to know that you don't like a top player playing the week before. So in Petra's case, Petra's case, are you okay that she's uh, lacing up again uh, just a week before a major? Uh, I'm okay with it, certainly because for, for the WTA, Eastbourne is a loaded field. It's one of the it's the best grass field for any uh, WTA warm up uh, before Wimbledon every year. Uh, I do think that playing losing early at Eastbourne would be beneficial. Uh, to Kvitova, since she's just won Birmingham. Uh, I don't think she needs the extra tennis at this point. She, she, she certainly doesn't need to groove her strokes. They are already in rhythm. We saw that all last week in Birmingham. The main point with Kvitova, as I wrote about at uh, Accent Tennis uh, on Sunday in my piece, is that if you, if you followed the weather in Birmingham this last week, it was generally around 70 degrees. Uh, you know, that's that's very mild, maybe not by uh, English residence standards, but certainly in terms of summer conditions compared to Melbourne, Australia, or New York, especially in the first week of the U.S. Open before uh, the, the, the calendar moves into late, mid-September and the weather gets a little cooler. Uh, 70 degrees are, are, is very mild, pleasant conditions in which to play tennis. Sunday, the, the temperature got up to 77, and we saw a bit of a struggle through a first set against Ribarakova before she settled down and, and won the second and third sets. This week in Eastbourne, the temperatures appear to be, in the forecast, uh, in the low to mid-80s. So I bring all of this up to say that Kvitova's run in Birmingham coincided with pleasant weather. We all know that Kvitova struggles in hot conditions, and she struggles in hot conditions even at Wimbledon, uh, recent losses the past few years to Yelena Yankovic and also to Madison Brangle, uh, they occurred in hot, sunny matches. So uh, it is entirely reasonable and logical and natural to think that Kvitova is the favorite for Wimbledon. You know, total, would, I would totally agree with that. But the limitation on that point is simply that if the weather gets extra hot, extra uncomfortable, that changes the dynamic for her. Um, it, it's unreasonable to think that she will avoid hot and sunny weather uh, in in all seven of her matches. She'll probably have to get through at least one or two of those. Uh, but if she can get some cloud cover and some mild conditions uh, in the in the second week, provided that she gets that far, you know, then it then it's all going to line up for her. But we just have to reiterate how much weather conditions have been a gauge for Kvitova's performances at the major tournaments. Right, so that's, uh, again, spot-on fair analysis. If you disagree with Matt or even a little bit what I said, you know, shoot us an email or reply to our Twitter threads. And uh, also keep in mind we have a GoFundMe 
uh, campaign going. Uh, we're trying to expand our team and funds are needed. So a lot of you have already been very generous in your support. Just please uh, spread the word uh, within your tennis community. And, uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll try our best to keep delivering more content. Thanks, Matt, for doing this. I know this was a last-minute request, which I've been putting through a lot lately. So, yeah, let's push this live and uh, keep working towards Wimbledon. Absolutely, and I would just tell all our listeners who might also be our readers uh, through our stuff on Twitter that this week is our Open Era at 50 Years series. We celebrate the golden anniversary of open tennis at the world's most famous tennis tournament, Wimbledon. So look for our historical callbacks all through the week, and we got some very special historical podcasts coming your way soon.